Shalom, Shalom and peace, y'all. Welcome to the Reverend Dan and Rabbi Matt podcast, where two Texas clergy from two different faiths talk about everything from lamentations to bedazzling Ash Wednesday. I'm Rabbi Matt. And I'm Reverend Dan, and this podcast is proof that peace is possible. Welcome to the podcast. Today, we're going to check in with each other and then... Let it ramble. We're going to ramble a bit, sure, but we're going to talk about... um, We're going to catch up a bit about the events of the last couple of weeks, maybe a little feasting and fasting, the events of our world before we get into talking about lament. We want to talk about lamentation today. Good, fun stuff, exciting things. Yes, on on this eve of the Fast of Esther as we're recording this. Indeed. Sacred good stuff. So what's happening in your world? Um, well, we just just had a, our big event, one of our major events of the year is our Israel Fair uh, that we do on campus, uh, celebrating Israel. And uh, I was on campus till about 10 o'clock at night. So it was a long day yesterday. Started with the Campus Ministry Association meeting, really good meeting that we had at the uh, Baptist Student Center and uh, very productive. It's always great to get together with my campus ministry colleagues and uh see what's going on. We heard from the Aggie Recovery Community, which is a relatively new student organization uh, that provides support for students who are dealing with addiction. And it's uh, been long in coming, but it's a very necessary resource. Oh, yeah. Since there's likely a few thousand students who are dealing with uh, addiction, recovering from addiction. So it's a great organization. They meet uh, a couple times a week. Check them out if you're you're interested. Sounds good. Yeah. We had... uh over at the church, we had Ash Wednesday, mm-hmm. and uh, of course, not just at the church, but all over the place. Right. And we had a good sunrise service at 7 a.m., 7 in the morning. Wow. We're not much of a uh, drive-by ashes right. church, which is very common these days, doing the drive-by ashes, mm-hmm. people meeting people where they are on right. campus, for example, to do the imposition of ashes, sign of the cross on people's foreheads, and... Um, it's it's not as big of a tradition in the United Church of Christ where mm-hmm. the imposition of ashes is the important thing. Rather, the community is the important thing. Okay. Um, so uh, I don't want to go so far as to say that the imposition of ashes is just gravy, but the community is the important piece. So we do two services, and we have one in the morning, one in the evening. Um, and something funny about this year uh, – Funny not being the right word, um, interesting, mm-hmm. purposeful, was that um, some churches were intentionally putting glitter oh. in the ashes. Interesting. Was it LGBT support? It was LGBT okay. support. Exactly. That's super cool. Yeah. Which raised all kinds of right. interesting message board activity among progressive types about yeah, sure. whether that was appropriate and whatnot. Yeah. Um, and where do you stand? All that good stuff. Where do I stand? Um, I'm kind of in the middle on that, actually. Okay. I was talking with our, our good friend Trent Williams, the associate mm-hmm. pastor over at the church, um, about that, and we just kind of go back and forth mm-hmm. because, on the one hand, you want to be intentional in showing support of our LGBTQ neighbors. Right. On the other hand, the ashes are literally the um, ashes of the palm branches right. from the previous year that symbolize welcoming Jesus mm-hmm. into Jerusalem, um, 
And so you just get into this literal problem. Yeah. But anyway. I have a set of palm branches just right above your head on my top bookshelf right above you right now. Listeners at home, you can't see this, but my palm branches from the holiday of Sukkot are up, up there. We use the palm branches from the holiday of Sukkot that we shake as part of the lulav, the four species. That includes the palm, myrtle, willow, and um, etrog, the citron. And we shake those in the holiday of Sukkot. And then people will save the palm branches for the spring holiday of Passover when we clean our homes from leavened bread. And you use it kind of as a brush to sweep away the the chametz, as we call it, which is the leavened bread product. And so we have, and then that gets burned as well. That's fantastic, listeners. You can't see what I'm seeing, but it is mesmerizing. <laughs> I uh, I also wanted to uh, check in with you about some personal stuff because today is my son's birthday. He's 12 years old today. Happy birthday! Yes, Mac. or Yom Haledet Sameach, as we say, yeah, in the Holy Land. Uh, Tell me the what? What's the reasoning there? That means just happy birthday. Happy birthday yeah, in Hebrew. Fantastic! I'm a literalist. I need <laughs> okay. to know these things. Mac Delion, twelve years old today. We got him a, uh, a drum set for his birthday because we're gluttons for punishment. Awesome! <laughs> yeah, it's going to be fun. Enjoy peace and quiet then. That's, yeah, indeed. That's what... <laughs> Lots of rest in our home. Uh, but that's what's happening on our end. Uh, how about you and your fam? Uh, I, I was able to. The kids weren't able to come to the. Israel Fair, but we had uh, artists from Israel uh, spray-painting T-shirts for people, whatever designs they wanted. And uh, I had the artists spray-paint each of the kids a T-shirt with their name on it. And my daughter was absolutely totally in shock. She's six. Couldn't believe that her name could end up on a T-shirt. Just had no <laughs> fathomable <laughs> realization how that could possibly happen, her name. Uh, but it was fun. And uh, I noticed the first two shirts... Um, they were spray painted. One was one was like an Israel theme, and we had two artists. So one was doing an Israel theme, some stars of David, and then the one next to him was um, hearts and and Jesus. And uh, it was it was just awesome that we had you know, we were spray painting shirts for any student who wanted them. Anyone who came up, we bought a bunch of white shirts, and the artists were just going to town on them. It was just it was beautiful. Sounds good. Yeah. Hearts and Jesus. Mm-hmm. Sounds like the next name of a non-denominational church in our town. It'll be successful to have a coffee shop. Everything's going to be great. Uh, I might find it myself. Um, I wanted to tell you about. <laughs> I wanted to tell you about uh, an ecumenical bilingual prayer vigil that oh, was yeah, held. Yeah. I got invited, but wasn't able to attend. I um, forgot what I was doing. Oh, I was giving a, I was giving a tour to a, a very large um, yeah. Tell us about confirmation that class. Yeah, so you know here at Hillel, since we're pretty much one of the only uh, fully functional Jewish centers in town, um, full time places, we get a lot of requests for uh, tours and visits from confirmation classes. And your confirmation class was with us last last Friday, right? Indeed. Right. It was a fantastic experience. It was great. It was a lot of fun. And uh, so on Sunday, there was a a huge group from United Methodist Church, 39 confirmation students. And uh, they wanted to come to a Friday night service, but it's just, that's just too many. It's just too many um, people in the pulpits uh, who aren't aren't (laughs) Jewish students. It just takes away from the mission. Uh, So I I offered them, I'd come in on Sunday when they normally have their class and I'd give a tour. And so they'll give a little talk. You know, Judaism 101, it, it went really well. It was great. Lots of great questions. One student in particular, as always, was just 
really up on things and had amazing questions. These kids are just fantastic. So I love one doing of, that stuff. One of the things that our kids were uh, curious about on Sunday when we had the chance to yeah. to unpack the experience was how many songs mm-hmm. you're able to put into a 45-minute-long mm. prayer service. Right. And, and I don't say that jokingly. It was fascinating because typically in a worship service um, on a Sunday morning yeah. uh, at Friends Congregational, the service will last an hour and 15, hour and 20 minutes, and we have typically three hymns. Wow. That's it. The co- three congregational singing mm-hmm. hymns. The rest are, you know, uh, piano accompaniment, yeah. the choir sings, what have you. But congregational singing, just three. Hmm. And in the uh, service here at Hillel, yeah, we, I, there were so, something like 20 songs. Right, yeah. 20 songs in a shorter amount of time. Right, and we just, just go from song to song. And yeah. Is it because we don't use instruments? I mean, it's traditional not to use instruments on, on the Sabbath. And so that's where this whole concept of congregational mm-hmm. singing and congregational melodies has come up. Is it because we don't have that where you have pianist and band and so there has to be rehearsal and there has to be you, know, you kind of have to be ready for the song everyone has to, the timing issue mm-hmm. or is it just tradition and that was another question they had was do you ever use the piano that was sitting right. in the corner no the answer was no we never do <laughs> i think once i had a during my first year here we had a student who could play piano and he learned a few things but it didn't go over well because it just oh. people were more listening than singing and people mm. want to sing okay Okay, so that makes sense. There's there's a fine line in uh, Christian worship mm-hmm. also uh, on that note about whether it's entertaining or if it's a form of worship, right? You know, and uh, music is a big deal in in Christian worship services, but but I often feel that tension, right? I mean, even in our church, something that I have uh, struggled with in coming from the Baptist tradition, where in the churches I grew up in. Um, it, when the choir was finished singing some anthem, mm-hmm. whether it's blow the roof off kind of stuff or very contemplative, it's met with amen or right. silence, okay. that being the affirmation. Right. But at the church where I serve now, uh, it's very often met with applause. Mm-hmm. And it took me a while to get used to that because mm. I heard that as it's applauding a uh, performance. Right. Um but yeah. in just different cultures, right. in our, it, it, and it, with a lot of uh, uh, people in our congregation who didn't grow up in, mm-hmm. or some who did not grow up in churches or who came from other church backgrounds, uh, they just kind of don't know what to do. Right. And so when they come together, they're like, okay, right, they just right, do that. Exactly. Yeah, um, we, we actually have a, a traditional prohibition against clapping on the Sabbath because you might come to make a drum, literally. You, you, ah. Musical instruments are prohibited on the Sabbath because you might come to repair the musical instrument. If you're playing a guitar, string breaks, you're going to repair it. And that's a violation of the Sabbath that you shouldn't shouldn't do any type of repair, any type of creative work like that. So, therefore, even very tra- in very traditional circles, clapping is not even allowed because it might cause you to, to build a drum mm. during the middle of the Sabbath. Um, clapping and musical instruments uh, in liberal denominations like the Reform Movement and Conservative Movement have become more popular as of late. And in most conservative communities, even, you'll find some kind of guitar music on on the sabbath on a friday night especially uh, but uh, there's still this kind of long-held prohibition of musical instruments i'm going to require that our confirmands listen to this episode 
So if any of their parents are listening, that you've been warned. Did they have any other questions that were? I feel like you're getting to any ones that they might have forgotten to ask or didn't (laughs) think to ask. You might go back to the confirmants from the other church and say, you need to listen to this podcast. I'm going to need to develop a fact or something. It's shameless (laughs) self-promotion in a constructive way. I'll just do a fact episode. Right. Answering all the confirmants (laughs) and all the questions. So uh, how about this uh, worship service go? But we digress. Yes, um, as we do. It was Sunday evening, mm-hmm. and as the tensions continue to build over the ongoing uh, ripple effects from the executive order, and now the, what is it being called, Muslim Ban 2.0 mm-hmm. of the new executive order, um, the refugee and immigrant populations uh, nationwide and in our own backyards are terribly afraid, terribly confused, and we, um, as advocates and allies, friends and neighbors, want to be able to do something with all of this um, in support. And so, thankfully, uh, at uh, Santa Teresa Catholic Church in Bryan, the priest there, Father Pedro, Pedro Ramirez, um, invited an ecumenical group of clergy Mm -hmm. to come and um, lead a bilingual prayer vigil mm-hmm. for immigrants and refugees to show support, to express advocacy. And it, it was an incredibly moving service. Um, the, the music was tremendous with stringed in- instruments and a choir and uh, people being invited to sing um, with them. Uh, everybody came in w- with candles as a, a show of everybody letting their light shine, mm-hmm. as we often say. Um, so that we could see each other and and right. how big the community is that is in support of this. This is to to show each other that this isn't some alternative or or fringe right. to help um, immigrants and refugees. Right. This is something that we're all concerned about across our differences, cultural differences included, barriers of language included, and so it was. Moving to hear the service led in English and Spanish, mm-hmm. I had the honor of reading a couple of prayers in Spanish okay. and not being familiar with um, Catholic liturgy. Yeah. Um, at one point during one of the prayers that I was reading, the mm-hmm. congregation started saying things back to me, yeah. and I froze with fear that I was doing something wrong, and Father Pedro from behind me said, keep going. So I, <laughs> so I just kept reading, and um, it was what it was. But I have to tell you, and I want to choose my words carefully because I don't want for this to sound um, like a lament, which we'll get to in a second, mm-hmm. but it's just an observation. In my 11 plus years of serving in this community, right. this was the first time that um, I had been a part of a collaborative hmm. effort in worship with my Catholic neighbors. Oh, wow. Um, and again, that's nothing uh, against my... Uh, Catholic neighbors in this community. If anything, mm-hmm. it's also on me that I need to do a better effort in reaching out and building those relationships. But that's what was going through my mind yeah. as I was looking at our um, Episcopal and mm-hmm. Lutheran and Uni- Unitarian Universalist clergy peers going in and out of that pulpit alongside our right. Catholic clergy peers is, why don't we do this right. more often? Why is this the first time that I've yeah. seen this in our community? And uh, that's what happens right. when we say um, we care about our immigrant yeah. and refugee neighbors. Yeah. And, and then and then last night there was another 
uh, interfaith prayer service, which I also couldn't attend, but was invited to by our friend, Reverend Clark. Um, and I was able to find, he, he reached out and I was really pleased that he did. And I was able to find a, a Jewish lay leader who was able to go there and say a prayer. And, uh, she found the experience very, very moving. So I was really glad to have been able to attend. So I'm glad there was representation from the Jewish community of that too. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, getting into the matters then that, uh, continue to concern us in these times of transition and change mm-hmm. for better and worse. Um, it often seems that it's more for worse, um, at least lately. Right. So uh, you were talking to me yesterday about right. some of the things that are in the news that are... Yeah, we were talking about uh, you know, Ben Carson's statement about slaves right, coming ben over to, to make a better life for themselves and um, the education secretary, DeVos, talking about how uh, students going to historically black colleges and universities that gave them, they had choice to do that and these misguided notions of America's history. And uh, we were talking about how I've been reading uh, noted sociologist and expert on race, uh, uh, Dr. Joe Fagan's book, The White Racial Frame, recently, and uh, you know his portrayal of how white-oriented American history truly is that of the 116 or something Supreme Court justices we've had in our country's history, like something like 90, uh, I might be getting the statistics backwards, but 93% male and 97% white. It might be 97% male and 93% white. But in the 90s, for both of those figures that our country's Supreme Court has been run by white males, and up until the 20th century, the Senate was appointed by state legislators. And so from our nation's founding to the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Senate vetoed every piece of civil rights legislation or anti-slavery legislation in our nation's history, that it was this white male oligarchy until very, very recently. And I think we think of America as this melting pot, but history proves it absolutely false in terms of who had the power and has the power. And, uh, you know, if anything, there's only been any kind of melting pot, toss salad, whatever you want to call it, of America has only been the past few decades. And you talk about rewriting of history. It's also a what's your, what is your starting point from history? And uh, often... Right. We talk as if 1964 is where mm-hmm. history began in this country. Right. That with the Civil Everyone's Rights Act, that's, and, the, right. that's every, the, the slate was wiped clean, and this is where we start. Right. No, every, more, everything no more drinking is, fountains, no more back of the bus. Right. That's, exactly. that's where we see American history going back uh, yeah. generations and generations. But it's... it's as it's if that is the shared point from which we... Begun from which we began this, this country's right. history of everything's equal, it's post-racial, and this all, of course, being a myth. Right. Um, and and then with us talking about the rewriting of history on top of that, mm-hmm. you have, yes, the statement that Ben Carson made, but also right. uh, DeVos mm-hmm. 
talking about historically black colleges and universities right. being, oh, excellent examples of exactly. what school choice can do. Yeah, and it reminds me of my trip to Washington, D.C. a couple months ago. I got to go to the National African American History Museum, the New Smithsonian, and there's almost an entire floor devoted to slavery and how powerful and how sad that is. Along an entire wall, they have these names of slave ships that carried thousands and thousands of slaves from Africa to the United States, and it, it lists the number of slaves that embarked on the ship and then the number of slaves who arrived. And so there's the decimation, the numbers who died en route totally paints what Ben Carson said in, in a different light. I mean, he he should go to this museum and, and see those exhibits. It's profoundly sad. And um, and I need to get there, too, because when you shared that, right. what came to mind for me was going to the Holocaust mm-hmm. Museum in D.C., and I've been three times now right. because the first time that I went, there's just not enough time in a day, two mm-hmm. days, any number no, of sure. days right. to take all of that in and really process it. And it gripped me in such a way where, yes, the emotions were all over the place, but it was also, it was also this, how can I put it? It really was an epiphany, Mm -hmm. a revelation for me that in spite of everything that I had read, everything that I had been taught, all the documentaries that I had seen that showed me, even hearing Elie Wiesel himself speak in person, all of this taught me, of course, that you know, this is a part of our history and it's bad, it's terrible. Right. But being in this museum, something about it opened my eyes to uh, how we have so much work to do. Mm-hmm. That it's not simply about being reminded of this awful thing that happened. It's, and because this awful thing happened, what will you continue right. to do? Yeah. How will you continue to learn right. from this? Um, so there's intersectionality between the um, African American History Museum, Absolutely. the Holocaust Museum, the messages. Right. And all of that. Yeah. Um, and for me, one of the saddest things at the Holocaust Memorial Museum is that stack of Torah scrolls that have been desecrated. You know, for us, the Torah scroll is is the holiest object we have in our tradition, in our synagogues. And we revere it and march around with it and it, dance around with it. And it is, it is holiness. It's the words... These are the these are the words of, of God, and um, to see those desecrated Torah scrolls ripped, cut up in a pile at the Holocaust Memorial Museum is just that's what affects me most. And every time I go, that's where I'm most moved. The destruction, and not just the the six million, but also the attempted destruction of the entire culture, the entire message, the the word of God. Um, I wanted to share something uh, that it comes from uh, Reverend Hannah Bonner, and um, it, it's on this topic. Uh, Reverend Hannah Bonner is um, uh, a pastor that I had the honor of meeting who has been um, about activism and justice work, um, mainly around mainly since the inexplicable death of Sandra Bland, Mm -hmm. how she was arrested and had no business being arrested in the first place. And then days later she winds up dead in her uh, jail cell. And um, just on the highway in Prairie View, just on the highway in in Prairie View. And Reverend Bonner wrote something on uh, Facebook that I wanted to share. And she said, it is vital 
as we observe what is unfolding around us to ask why these things are happening. We can see that people in the administration are trying to rewrite the narrative of slavery and racism in this nation. Hmm. Ben Carson calling slavery immigration. Betsy DeVos saying HBCUs were founded as pioneers of school choice. We can see that our immigration process is being changed to diminish the number of black and brown people entering the country. So, she asks, what is the why? Why this? Why now? What is the ultimate goal? What kind of world are we forming, both intellectually and physically? And what has history taught us will inevitably result if we don't resist? So, the rewriting of history, it seems to me, is coming more easily mm-hmm. because of our inability to recognize um, how atrocious things are right. and how they have been, right. um, which is which brings us to the topic of lament that I hope we could get into. Yeah, and and you know I've been thinking a lot about the the vandalism of Jewish cemeteries, the threatening phone calls to Jewish community centers that have happened even within the state. Thankfully, not to us, but. You know, every day I come to Hillel expecting to see swastikas on the building, uh, a broken a broken window, and uh, thankfully that that hasn't happened. But yeah, it's it's this forgetting history and not knowing how to how to remember the, remember the past. And I, I was just reading a book about the Jewish year and the cycles of the Jewish year, and the author put in perspective, we, we celebrate and we also fast. And there's this natural cycle that I hadn't thought about before. But for instance, as I mentioned, tomorrow's the fast of Esther, uh, which is in commemoration for the three days that Esther fasted before she went before King Ahasuerus to tell him that she's a Jew and that Haman had um, called for a genocide, basically. In, in the kingdom. And um, so I'll be fasting all day tomorrow in, in lament in memory of Esther's fast, which was successful. And then and then Purim comes up this year on Sunday. Usually the fast is the day before, but because of the Sabbath on Saturday, uh, the fast falls on Thursday. And then Purim is actually on Sunday. And Purim's a feast day. It's a holiday. And uh, you know that, that brought me to think about this major one of our major fasts of the year, the ninth of the month of Av, which commemorates the destruction of the first temple in 586 BCE and the destruction of the second temple. Both are traditionally said to have happened on the same day, and that was in 70 by the by the Romans. And this is a full 25 hour fast, and it used to involve sackcloth and ashes, and uh, you know. And now it's just a it's a, a full fast, no eating, drinking, no showering, um, nothing pleasurable on these twenty five hours in commemoration of this these twenty five hundred year old and two thousand year old tragedies in Jewish history. And we literally we, we read the Book of Lamentations, which is is if you've read it, is incredibly sad, incredibly tragic. All the more so in Hebrew, and especially when chanted in the sorrowful, harrowing tones that we chant the the Book of Lamentations that we call Echa from the first word, um, and we read it while sitting on the floor. We don't even benefit from a comfortable chair when we're chanting. We turn down the lights in the synagogue, 
and um, and everything everything changes on the day, but it's it's in the middle of the summer. It's right between, basically between the holiday of Shavuot, uh, which commemorates the giving of Torah on Mount Sinai, a third of our, one of our pilgrimage festivals, and it's seven weeks before Rosh Hashanah, the new year, uh, another day of celebration. And then 10 days after Rosh Hashanah is Yom Kippur, but actually two days after Rosh Hashanah is also a, a, a full day fast. Um, so it, it was interesting reading, finishing this book this week and thinking about these cycles of fast and feast, especially as we're coming up on this fast of Esther tomorrow and, uh, and how, how we do or how we do not lament in society today, how we don't think about the past, how we don't remember actual true history through such things as classes, books, the history museums that we go to or, or don't go to. And that's something that that uh, I'm really curious about because in Christian circles, lamentation is not something that we uh, incorporate very much into our life of faith. Hmm. It's not something that we talk about. It's not something that uh, that is a priority right. for us and it's just because it isn't in our language it isn't yeah. in our liturgy yes it is in our mm. biblical canon right um but <laughs> preachers are typically going to shy away from reading from lamentation if given the choice for other passages sure. from sunday to sunday because of everything that you just described yeah. but what is also happening in um some Christian theological circles and scholarly work is this um, reclaiming of lament to say this is a, a key component of our faith. And right. without lament, um, you are missing, uh, for example, one way in which to worship God, mm-hmm. um, to, to demonstratively mourn. Mm-hmm. And uh, to go about that can be a way of setting this core piece of our pain at, as is often said in Christian circles, at the feet of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I just wanted to learn more from you about right. what is the the power of lamentation mm-hmm. in, in Judaism. What, um, the, I hear the ritual. Tell me more about what uh, what does that conjure in the community, in, in the Jewish community, how does lamentation grant uh, more fellowship, more power? It, it's a loaded question, but I'm just curious. Right. I mean, well, as with so many things, any of these uh, lamenting commemorations need to be done in community. You need to have a quorum of, of 10 Jewish adults to do it. You have to find community. You shouldn't just be sitting at home reading the Book of Lamentations. Um, it makes me think about Shiva, the seven days of mourning following the death of a close relative, that that's a time when basically your home is open and anyone can drop by at any time to mourn with you. And just like when we book, read the Book of Lamentations on the ninth of Av, you sit on low stools. You're, it's, a, it's a ritualized mourning practice. And then after those seven days, you take a walk around the block and you you start transitioning to the outside world. You go back to work, but for 30 days after that, then you continue to mourn to a lesser degree. Um, men don't don't shave or cut their hair and uh, still avoid music and entertainment. And if it's your parent, that goes on for a full 11 months. You have these very ritualized steps, and it's a 
those who study grief often find it very a very cathartic process that you have these officialized liturgical ways of mourning. Um, but when when I'm observing the ninth of Av, it's it's basically. And our Jewish tradition has also added many other tragedies to that day that lots of other things have happened on that day, such as the expulsion from Spain, such as um, the murder of Archduke Ferdinand starting World War One, which led to, of course, World War Two and the, and the Holocaust. And the Nazis used that day to to announce major raids or to do to do major um, impact the Jewish community negatively on the, on that day. Um, they knew their Jewish history, and um, and so it's a day when we remember all sorts of catastrophes. And in the traditional Jewish community, it's also the day that the Holocaust is remembered um, for for Israel and for most of the liberal Jewish community. We have Yom HaShoah, Holocaust Remembrance Day, that happens a couple weeks after Passover. Um, but the ninth of Av is this is is a very very serious day. It's a day you can work, but it's often hard to. I, I often find myself journaling on that day and just spending most of the day thinking about these tragedies and focusing on where the Jewish community is at. And um, I'm, I'm sure I all the more so will this summer, um, where with our nation being where it's at in, in 2017 America. Sure. Thank you. It, it sounds like uh, there's there's power twofold. One is in remembrance mm-hmm. that we have to be able to remember so many of the things that you described and more, um, in order to recognize how much more work we have to do, where we need to go. But two, the there's empowerment in community with that act of remembrance. Yes. And some of what you and I have been talking about is is is, uh, is concerning is how hyper engagement. Mm-hmm. can lead to burnout. Right. Um, and I think that a big piece of that is that if people think about, notice these atrocities that are happening all around us, that, for example, Reverend Bonner shared in her Facebook post, mm-hmm. it's looked at individualistically. Right. Through social media, for example, it's looked mm-hmm. at individualistically. And one can only take so much... Um, and or they convince themselves that they can only take so much that I, they don't they even want to go there anymore. Absolutely. I have to confess that I have felt that way um, lately as well. Right. But there's empowerment in community and doing that mm-hmm. together as coming together and recognizing these things. Right. Because that is um, an acknowledgement that we're not alone. And once you grieve, um, there's a physiological thing that happens where... You feel stronger. You feel better. Mm-hmm, absolutely. But not until you go through that purposeful right. lament. This is something where I feel strongly about uh, Good Friday. Mm-hmm. Some people say that I'm uh, – <laughs> some folks might think that I'm kind of um, uh, just cryptic, but I value Good Friday more than most any other – holy day in the entire Christian year. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's because I feel that if you don't intentionally fully engage in Good Friday, which of course um, remembers the crucifixion and death of Christ, that how are you going to celebrate Easter then? What do you have to celebrate? 
And the way this ties back into, for me, what we're talking mm-hmm. about is that if we continue to celebrate all the great things about this nation, this mm-hmm. country, this community, this neighborhood, what have you, uh, without looking at the difficult things that are going on, the unjust things that are happening, the way that certain people are being purposefully left out, written out uh, with a narrative that's changing, then it's a false celebration. It's right. an empty celebration. Yeah. Uh, so anyway. I, I was thinking a lot this week about um, I think it's Black Sunday, and the the day that the there was the march on the across the bridge in Selma, and I think we're at the fifty second or fifty third anniversary this week. I don't remember what day this week, but it was it was celebrated last Sunday in Selma, and uh, you know it's it's only ten hours away from us. It's a ten hour drive, and it made me. I was thinking a lot about it, and made me really just you know, want to next year take a group of students and drive out there and march across that bridge on on that day and march with them. Yes, please. I want to go. Okay, we should do it. Okay, done. Okay. Um, in addition, um, well, totally lost what I was going to say. I threw you off? Yeah, it's okay. It's my own fault. All right, then. Well, uh, that probably brings us to a good point where we can start to wind down a bit. But uh, we wanted to share this conversation with you all about what what lamentation is, what um, its significance is in, in Judaism and Christianity, and the potential power that it has for us as a community uh, to move purposefully to next steps. We need to, as a community, recognize things that are going on around us. And uh, here, again, I want to share the rest of uh, Reverend Bonner's Facebook post, because after she asked those questions Mm -hmm. about what kind of world are we forming, uh, she says, White Christians, if you are not actively alarmed, but still clinging to your fandom of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I believe he would have some pretty choice words for us right now. And then she quotes Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was, of course, the Lutheran pastor who was martyred at the hands of the Nazis. If you board the wrong train, it is no use running along the corridor in the other direction. Christendom adjusts itself far too easily to the worship of power. Christians should give more offense, shock the world far more than they are doing right now. We must finally stop appealing to theology to justify our reserved silence about what the state is doing, for that is nothing but fear. Hmm. So the empty celebration without lamentation is kind of fear in disguise. But I think we've got to expose that for ourselves, no matter how scary that might be, and and even grieve that uh, reality that we are afraid. There's power that comes from intentionally going there. Hmm. I remember what I was going to mention, and it's it's this Muslim ban 2.0. That where, where are the protests? It was it the timing of the first Muslim ban and the shock and the surprise of it that led to right. these spontaneous airport protests that galvanized the entire nation? Or are, are we tired out? Mm-hmm. We not Can we not protest any longer? Is it because of this 10-day delay of when it goes into effect that then we're going to start protesting? Right. Where... What's the line? Sure. What's what's going to happen next? Are we, sure. As I mentioned last episode, are we waiting until April first? And now it looks like that. Um, April first, fifteenth, twenty second. Are we going to wait for the next March protest? protest? Right. Sure. Right. 
I noticed though there's a support for trans students March tomorrow. tomorrow night on campus. That's so, right. That's right. By the time um, we have this podcast out there, it, it's not going to do good uh, announcing it. But yes, there's a, a rally for transgender rights in, uh, against, on campus, 530 tomorrow Bill night. Six and the, yeah. the bathroom bill that mm-hmm. is would just pass by committee <clears throat> today, this morning. Goes I to believe. the Senate. Right. We'll see what happens there. Right. I still have hope that that's where it, that it stops. That would be great. But we shall see. Yeah. Yes. Where is the outrage? Right. We'll leave you with that uh, good rhetorical question. Uh, we hope that uh, we've given you some things to think about, gotten under your skin in constructive ways. And uh, we invite you also to share your, your feedback and, and thoughts with us. And, and we yeah. do want to hear from you about what we might uh, be talking about in future episodes. Um, and so... You can uh, find us on Facebook. Uh, leave us some comments there. You can uh, find us on Twitter as well. And we're still working on that website. Uh, but, you know, the rabbi and I have uh, a little bit going on these days. So we, we give what we can to it. Yep. We'll get there. But, yeah, message us. Let us know. Let us know what you think. That'd, yeah, that would be perfect. So if uh, this episode comes comes out at you at spring break, I hope you're having a good one. And we'll look forward to, co- to continuing this conversation here pretty soon. So be well, everybody, and Take peace care. be with you. Shalom, everybody.